Blog Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning out there, you guys. It is we we are into our this is our this is our second Saturday, second Saturday in October. I'm telling you, Thanksgiving will be here before you know it. That's I was telling my son that last night. That's how quickly things go. But I hope that you you're enjoying uh, autumn where you are and that you're having a. a a wonderful start to this brand new uh, season, and we have a wonderful guest here on deck for you this morning who hails from the Big Apple, New York. And I, I also want to take a moment. I also want to take a moment to uh, send you know best wishes to anyone who was in the path of. I think it started as a hurricane out in the islands, and then by the time it came on shore to us, it was a a storm, a tropical storm, but in Florida and the Carolinas and uh, in Georgia here, we didn't get much from it. But you are in our our thoughts and in our prayers, and we send you best wishes. So welcome again to this Saturday, October the eighth, off the shelf show. I'm excited. I want to begin. This is our thought for the day. Something for you to think about as you go through your day and through your week. And today's quote is from Nelson Mandela, and it is. It always seems impossible until it's done. So that's why we have to have courage and get out there and do what other people keep telling us. It just can't be done because it's never been done before. It always seems impossible until it's done. And I hope that you're one of those people that go out there and help make the impossible good happen starting today. Now to our off the shelf listeners, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you think you are somebody who can identify the person whenever you watch a movie or read a book before they tell you who did it? You know, even these real life mysteries, they try to keep you hanging on, you don't really know what happened. Are you somebody who almost always fingers the right person? If you if you love mysteries, then I think you'll really enjoy Love Pour Over Me. It has there's a murder mystery tucked in this story, but it's all the the foundation of Love Pour Over Me is relationships. There's a complicated relationship between Raymond and his father, and also the woman he meets at college who be turned out to be a soulmate. Her name is Brenda. She's from Tennessee, and Raymond's from Ohio, and he has. Three friends, they're from different parts of the country and one's from Italy. They are thick as thieves. <laughs> there is their lives, what goes on in their lives. And one of them is a, he goes on to play, one of them goes on to play football in the NFL. Very talented. And this is what his murder mystery centers around. So you think you can figure out who done it? And also, what's going to happen to Raymond in Love Pour Over Me? I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can get it in ebook or print form. It's available at ebook at Amazon.com, Walmart, and libraries. If you don't see it on the store shelf, just ask the clerks. I'd like to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order a special copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So please go get a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know how you enjoy the book. And now let us go and meet our special guest for this Saturday. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is David Lamb. And he joins a long, distinguished list of guests who we've had on the show. And, again, I say this, some of our guests own multimillion-dollar businesses. We've had guests on who come on, have been on CNN, and I mean regularly, CNN, TV One, some have their own television stations. They've gone on to do very, very well. So we're really honored to add him to our list of guests. And so this morning we introduce to you David Lamb. And David is a Hunter College graduate. He's also a graduate of Princeton University and the New York University School of Law. In addition to working as an attorney, I think he's our second or third attorney that we've had on Off the Shelf. David is a playwright, and he's the author of the book On Top of the World, 
And until the bell chimes, he and his wife co-authored the book Perfect Combination. Love that title. And you can check David out online at davidlambooks.com. You can go over there now even while you're listening via either the chat room or the phone, however you iTunes, however you're tuned in right now to the show. And his website is davidlambooks.com, and that's D-A-V-I-D, L-A-M-B, like the, like the animal, books. B-O-O-K-S dot com So it's spelled just the way it sounds DavidLambBooks.com Welcome to Off the Shelf, David I'm glad to be here Thank you very much for having me And it, it is a pleasure to have you here uh, with us Are you still in, in New York right now? Or are you still there in the city? Yes, I'm in New York, yep So you, did you guys get any of that, that rain from Matthew? Or no, no, you guys totally no missed it? we didn't get anything so we were blessed this time. Okay, I know because when I was in, living in Pennsylvania, when Superstorm Sandy came through, and she came through, she came through pounding. So that's a good thing. It, it is truly a pleasure to have you here on Off the Shelf with us, David. A lot of our listeners are writers themselves, business owners, people who want to to write a book or find a way to market this story. Some are avid book readers, so you have a, a various, various different people who tune in to Off the Shelf. But this is something I ask every single guest before we launch into the today's questions. Can you tell our, our guests, I'd like to give the, our guests a little backstory, listeners a little backstory back on our guests. So can you tell Off the Shelf what life was like for you growing up in New York and is the Big Apple, as fascinating as folks say. So what was it like when you were growing up? And is it really <laughs> as fascinating as people say it is? Well, I, I grew up um, in public housing in New York, in the Astoria Housing Projects in Queens. And um, that was in the era of hip-hop was just starting, and so I got to see its formation. And the, the thing about New York is it's very ethnically diverse. So my immediate neighborhood was, you know, probably 80% African-American, 20% Latino, mostly Puerto Rican. So that's the experience I grew up in. But then the surrounding area was overwhelmingly Greek and Italian, and you had to deal with the conflicts between the groups when we would try and walk to school. And, you know, a lot of the people that I grew up with in the area didn't go on to college, and when I was a kid, um, even though I was labeled uh, gifted, if you will, in one respect, in another respect, my mother had to constantly fight for me being labeled slow, you know, which is something Mm. a lot of young black kids have to do, because my handwriting was atrocious, and so they would try and say I was slow because my handwriting was atrocious, but my test scores were always very high, and so... You know, growing up, my mother constantly had to battle the public schools uh, to see that I got a, a proper education. Um, and my, my stepfather is a, is, was a math professor, is a math professor in, in the CUNY system in New York. So even though I wasn't really getting proper math instruction in school, he used to make me come visit him at the college after school. And I'd go and sit down, and he'd just hand me a list of math questions, and I'd have to do them. And at the time, you know, I wanted to be outside playing with my friends, and I was yeah. very annoyed mm-hmm. about that. But I realized, you know, later <laughs> that he was helping me and supplementing what I wasn't getting in school. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, yeah. And I always want, wanted to be a writer. Um, I'll just say one last thing is that when I was a kid, um, there was a famous reporter on the radio whose name was David Lampell which sounds very much like David Lamb, and he sort of looked like me. And so when I would hear him on the radio, I would always substitute my name and imagine that I was him. And that really, like, made me want to be a journalist, made me want to be a writer, and, and uh, sort of inspired me that it was possible that I could do that. Now, so he was local? I don't think I've heard of him. He was yeah, a local he was local. York. He was on the, the, the main black stations, WBLS and WLIB. Oh, 
Oh, now isn't that something? You actually led into my next question. That's something else that I asked people. What did they dream of? So you you heard your, your stepfather put, pushed you in math, your mom, and that is so good. I think as a parent, I had to do the same thing with my son. Some you gotta you don't want to be the parent who goes up to the school and cusses the teacher out. That just looks ignorant. But you do have to stay on top of what's going on in school, and when your child needs an adult voice to represent them or advocate for them, you need to step up. You need to step up in an intelligent way. And then if the school still doesn't do it, like with your stepfather, then you start filling in those gaps. And I think that is that is really a blessing that you had. That are you an only child, or did you do you did you grow up with siblings? No, I'm an only child, which probably, you know, enabled them to, to do more. I mean, I grew up with my cousins who were very close to me, more like brothers, but I'm a, my mom's only child. Was New York as exciting? Now, I've been to New York several times, many times actually, but for our listeners who have never been there, people get excited. Almost the same way people get excited, they say, I'm going to Paris or I'm going to Italy or I'm going – some to some country they've never been to. Some people I'm going to Africa and I'm going to go see like you go not see see animals in a real natural setting, not just the zoo. And I had a friend who went to Africa and she said, "Let me tell you, lions and real life and elephants don't look anything like they do at the zoo." And I've heard other <laughs> people say that it's like you're looking at a totally different animal when you mm-hmm. see them in a in a. Um, so people get excited to go, you know, to taste the different foods and see the different cultures. And New York is in that, when it comes to the United States, New York is number one. People from all over the world are like, I'm going to New York. So when you were a child, was it as fascinating? Were you like wide-eyed going through Manhattan or uh, taking the the, the train of um, Harlem or different parts of the Bronx and going to sporting events? Were your eyes, like, wide open and you were fascinated? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, like I said, I grew up in Queens, but I went to school in Manhattan on uh, 49th Street and 9th Avenue, which is known as Hell's Kitchen. If anybody's seen the show on Netflix, Daredevil, it takes place in Hell's Kitchen. And so uh, growing up, uh, you know, taking a train from Queens, to school in Man- high school in Manhattan was like an adventure every day. And you would see people from all over the city. You would see people going to work, adults. And it was it's just so much activity. Um, I, I visited Houston last year. And even though it's a big city, on the weekend, the downtown was empty. And in oh. New York, it's not ever like that. You know, it could be 2 a.m., and there are going to be people all over the place in, in the, the theater district. You know, it's just always something happening. When they say it's the city that never sleeps, that's that's very real. It, it really is the city that never sleeps. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you if you have, before we launched into your questions, I mean my questions about your novels, to, to give our readers some background on your writing I was going to ask you, had you ever lived anywhere other than New York where you can compare what it's like in the city? So as you write and you you write about different characters, unless you set them all in New York and don't take them from any other places, uh, did you have anything to compare or contrast New York with? And you just said Houston, even though it's a big city. Uh, I know a lady who's from uh, the Houston, Dallas area, and she said it's nothing to pace. It's more like a southern pace. It's nothing like New York, she said. It's nothing, mm. even though the city's big, it's nothing like uh, New York is a city all to itself. Now, you majored in economics at Hunter College, mm-hmm. and that is a long way, David. You said you knew when you were a little boy, you saw a journalist <laughs> on TV, you would replace your, his, your name for his. That's a long way from storytelling economics. What attracted you to economics? Do you want a, a made-up, uh, politically correct answer or the truth? <laughs> now, what attracted you to, to major in economics? You wouldn't believe Honestly. me. I, in my senior year of high school, they had some college students come visit to try and encourage us to go. It might have been 11th grade, actually. And there was a brother from Howard University who was dressed real sharp, and he was cool, and all the girls liked him. 
and he was an economics major. And I thought, well, if I go, when I go to college, if I'm an economics major, I'll dress real cool and all the girls will like me. Oh, <laughs> you're super real. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a first. That, that is a first. It. I've had. <laughs> yeah. Then, then at the time, also, um, the Michael J. Fox show, I don't remember what it was, it was on television, but he was always talking about going to the Wharton School. Family Matters. Yes. Was that Family? Going to the Wharton no, no, no. School was of that Economics. Family, family Ties or Family Ties or one of them, yeah, might have been Family and Ties. And so that mm-hmm. made me want to go to the Wharton School of Business, and um, I, I found I had a knack for it. You know, because even though my high school was academically deficient, I did have a, a physics teacher who was very good and who, you know, even though we were black kids, he didn't think that we didn't have ability. And he actually, you know, pushed us to learn. And economics likes to act like it's a science, and a lot of it is modeled after physics models. So I, I could I could understand it quickly, um, and, I, and I had a knack for it. But I always wanted to write. It was also that people were telling me you have to do something concrete with your life, which is eventually how I went on to law school, you know, that because writing wasn't concrete enough in other people's eyes. But I, but I always wanted to write and kept writing on the side um, because that was my passion. That's something that maybe we will explore later in the interview. You, you hear so many people, you struggle with what you think will work for you in the world the practical, like you said, and then what your heart wants to do. And sometimes the two are so far apart that it's a struggle. Some people it's a lifetime, a lifetime struggle. I wanted to ask you, this this leads into another question that I just looked up and saw I was going to ask. Do you think that fear of not earning enough money to leave home is what directs our paths more than our honest, heartfelt passions. I think we end up regretting it later in our lives. And how do you think we can turn this around for younger generation? But first I want to know from you, from your perspective, your experiences so far, do you think the fear that, okay, if I become a painter, because a lot of actors and actresses and painters, they don't make anything, some don't, nothing, and some, I mean, maybe three, four thousand a year. Everybody doesn't make that big, those big bucks. Same for a lot of athletes. But do you think that fear of not earning enough money is is what does that direct our footsteps the safe way? Uh, I'm curious. Or do you think we most of us follow our heart? You know, when you're younger, the younger you are, the more you follow your heart. But as you get you know, to college and beyond, I remember the term, you know, having something to fall back on. Uh, you got to have something to fall back on. And um, the guy who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he had this saying, um, keep your job, work your business. Mm. And that's that's what, you know, I did with my wife for a long time when we first, we haven't discussed it yet, but when we first started producing a play, we kept our jobs and did the play on the side. Because there is a, a real fear that, you know, you're not going to earn enough money. Um, and especially if you're an artist who is writing stuff that is, um, what can I say, um, conscious and, and addresses things that are going on. You know, society doesn't really support that. Um, and so that is a real fear. Um but, you know, you have to learn to, to challenge your fears. I mean, that, that doesn't mean being wide-eyed and just rushing into things without a plan. Um, but, I mean, for me, it, for a while it was how could, I, how could I do both? How could I continue to work and earn a living but also write? And then eventually, um, you know, the writing sort of took, took off a little bit and took over my life and and I I went into writing full time but you know it's always a fear we all wrestle with fear and that voice in our head um telling you you can't do it you know this is too hard I mean, which is a lot of what the book on top of the world is about is even though he's successful those voices are haunting him 
you know, like as much mm. as a goat would haunt you. And you have to learn wow. to conquer those voices. I, I would suggest two yeah. books that would help people with that. Martin Luther King's um, The Strength to Love has helped me with that greatly. He talks a lot about fear and how to overcome fear and the use of laughter to overcome fear and to ridicule the ideas, that voice in your head. Because most of the times the things, the, the tragedies that it's warning you are going to happen, they're never going to happen. It's an illusion. You're scaring yeah. yourself for no reason. And the other book I would say is um, The Voice of Knowledge by Don Ruiz. It has a lot of information about how to mm. quiet that voice in your head and overcome that fear. You know, it's as as now when you're young, when you're young, and I don't know who's going to listen to the show live or in the archives, because we have many people who listen to Off the Shelf, but you never know what it's for when you're young. And if anybody young does just, even if it's by accident, tunes in today, when you're young, I'm thinking about bullying. It feels like what's happening to you is never going to end, and it's <laughs> like it's only you. I'm glad you said that because it's not only you, and it's more common than you imagine. And I would encourage anybody struggling with something, fear, to talk to someone and to know that it will change. Don't give in to it. Don't let it become your boss. And so I, I thank you for sharing those two books they might help, who knows, help save somebody's life. You never know. Now, you went from economics to law. Do you think before we go into, I want to talk about perfect combination before we get into on top of the world, but you went from economics to law. Do you think, David, that you'll serve in government one day? You've got the background for it. I my see, now, you asked me how I went from wanting to write to economics, and you just did it to me. You said I got the background for it, go into government. My heart wants to write and produce plays. That's what I want to do. So I'm hoping that I'm able to do that. Um, if I If I go into service, what I would like to do is there's an organization called Oh my, legal outreach that I used to work with mm-hmm. that is a um, not-for-profit that works with kids in Harlem starting from the seventh grade, teaching them to be lawyers, teaching them to defend oh. themselves against the police using the law, you know, right. not arms, and teaching them to be lawyers. And it, it's a fantastic program. It really is. And I, I would love to do something like that. Okay, okay. Now, your wife and you co-wrote the book, Perfect Combination. What was that process of co-authoring, not just co-authoring a book with anybody, but actually with your spouse? What was that process like? Horrible. (laughs) I'm just playing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're joking. (laughs) It was a process that was underway before we knew it was underway. Because what would happen was after people would come to see our play Platanos and Collard Greens, they would, we would come out and thank the people, the audience for coming out to see it, and they would be stunned that we were a husband and wife who worked together 24/7 and hadn't killed each other. And they would <laughs> always ask us questions. You know, how does this work? How are you guys like so happy and you're working together 24/7? And we like unofficially sort of became counselors to dozens of couples. Um, wow. In that process, and so after a while, uh, people started asking us to write down our advice, and so after after you know sort of advising people for a number of years, we decided to write write a book sharing our advice on what we learned by working together and producing plays together, and how it the lessons we learned to not weaken our bond but to to strengthen our bond. And um, Perfect Combination is written both in her voice and, and in my voice. Um, and, it, you know, it's really honest, you know, about the things that we had to overcome, uh, you know, our own fears about relationships that we had to overcome, um, and the things that we've learned on the, along the way that could help any person um, have a better love life and help couples improve their love. Um, it, people really, really, really love that book. So was it written, when you say 
part in your voice and part in your wife's voice. Is it in a memoir style? How how is the book yeah. format? How yeah. is okay? Yeah, it's a, it's a memoir style that gives um what we call the seven key ingredients to love and happiness. Um, and I, I'll share the first key ingredient is um you know let your past be your past mm. because a lot of times we look at the current person that we're with or potentially with through the jaundiced eye of some past pain, either that was inflicted upon us or that we inflicted to someone and now we feel guilty about. Instead of being there in that moment with that person, that doesn't mean that you don't learn from the past, but a lot of people live in it and and they're not, there in that moment, in that relationship, you know, and you have to learn to forgive other people who may have done something to you, forgive yourself, and and grow and be there in that moment. Um, so that that that's you know that's really critical. You know, you got to let the baggage from the past go and not carry it around because you walk around hunched over. Right. Let me ask you this: some people in relationships and Sometimes you feel like you're giving more than the other person. Let's say you're somebody who does forgive, and in some relationships there are people who do this constantly, and the other person is taking advantage of it. So they have an affair, you forgive them, and then give it a couple of weeks, months. They're they're doing it again, and then you forgive. And for some couples, that becomes a decade pattern. Somebody breaks down and cries, you forgive, and. It goes again. You could talk whether it's gambling, whatever. Is there a point though when you just have to cut your losses and say, "I'm out"? Well, our motto is "Love like kids, act like adults." Mm-hmm. Now, the reason we say "love like kids" is kids hide when they love you. You know, they they're just freely expressing it. And when we become adults, we get afraid to freely express it because we're afraid of being hurt. Um, But the second part of that is act like adults. If you're with someone who is incapable of acting like an adult, you know, then you need to cut your losses. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. someone has to be, uh, just to throw Donald Trump into this for a second, um, I hear guys saying, well, you know, that's the way guys talk, you know, when we're together or whatever. Not at 59 years old. Yeah. You know, maybe you're 13, 14, you know. But at some point you have to grow up. Mm-hmm. You know. And no, that is. That's just no, real. That's true. You have... And then, too, we we... It is irregardless of gender and sometimes age. People know better, and we excuse a lot of things about ourselves by just saying that's just. I've heard people say that when it comes to uh, teenagers, they say every 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 young adult does drugs, and I'm like, no, they don't. I didn't. No, I know a lot don't. of people who didn't. It's just this assumption that when when we're not doing right, we say everybody's just like I am. Everybody's just like me. Everybody does that. So, no, that was a good point you brought out. If you're not acting like an adult and just because somebody's done wrong or you've done wrong and maybe everybody you know has doesn't mean that everybody does that and it still doesn't make the wrong right. What what actions can couples take, David, to remain friends, especially after they've been married for, let's say, seven or more years? Oh, Oh, I'd love this question. Uh, never lose the spontaneity. You know, never lose, never be afraid to surprise each other with gifts, with dates. Uh, on our 10th wedding anniversary, I hope there's no film of this, I surprised my <laughs> wife, who was a big Prince fan, by dressing up with one of those puffy print shirts and getting a guitarist to play and saying a door for her, you know. 
and oh, she loved so me because I, I, you know, I'm willing to put my my love out there for her. Yeah. You know. Oh my God, um, that is sweet. Yeah. You know, we spontaneously go on dates when we can, although our eight year old gets in the way as much as she can. But you know, <laughs> don't don't take the person for granted. You know, mm. be be adventurous, willing to try new things together. Um, and let the person who is best at something do that. Don't fall into a pattern just because you're the guy and she's the woman that she has to cook and you have to mow the lawn, for example. If she's better at mowing the lawn and you're better at cooking. You know, right. a lot of times couples just fall into this even though the other person is better at it and more, you mm-hmm. know, enjoys it more. You know, mm-hmm. you, you do what works for you. Not every right. couple is identical in that sense. But I really say, you know, be spontaneous with your expressions of love. Okay, okay. Now, you know. And this is in for our off-the-shelf listeners, perfect combination. And this is a book yeah, David right. Lamb Cole, co-wrote with his wife. Now, David, did you and your wife also co-write the screenplay, Platon, I hope I'm saying this right, Platanos and Collard Greens, did you both co-write this uh, screenplay? We, you spoke about it earlier in the interview, but did you? was this also a joint effort between the two of you? In a different way. It's uh, Platanos and Collard Greens is the name of it. Platanos, and, okay. And it's, 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 a, it's a stage play that's run in New York for more than 10 years off-Broadway. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wrote a book and self-published it years ago entitled Do Platanos Go With Collard Greens? And you were asking about New York City, and it's, it was a book about relations between blacks and Latinos in New York City looked at through the relationship of two college students who meet and fall in love and the ensuing drama between their families and communities. And I would go and speak at colleges about it, and the students would say, oh, this would make a great play, this would make a great play. Now, at the time, I was working as a lawyer and going to do this on the side. And I said, that sounds great, but it's too much work. And then I was lucky enough to marry somebody not only better looking but smarter than me, my wife, Jamila. (laughs) And she said, well, you know, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. And so the original plan was to do it for one weekend. And she went out and got a book on producing how to produce your own off-Broadway showcase. And I hired my law school roommate as the director. And we planned on doing it for one weekend, June 27th. 2003, and the audience came out and loved it and ran home telling their friends about it, and people wow. just kept coming and coming and coming. And so she was the producer, and I was the writer, and eventually writer-slash-director. Yeah. So um, how many actors did you guys have? In the, in over the years? Area? Over the years? Because it went so on like so like how long. many characters in the, in, in the play? Oh, Are they like eight, three eight characters, characters in the play? Oh, eight. eight. Oh, okay. So were you part of selecting the original cast? Did you? Yes. Did they audition in front of you? <laughs> Sorry. I, you just took me back to that first audition, and that was trip. Yes, they did audition in front of us, yes. Oh, my goodness. So you were really involved in that entire process. I think the good thing about that, when you get more involved in things, whether it's art or business, whatever it is, when other people come along and tell you they can they can do that component for you, you're better able to negotiate a good deal because you know what's all involved. They can't tell you how complicated it is and it's going to cost a gazillion dollars. And you're like, wait a minute, I've done that before myself. So mm-hmm. you can negotiate. Mm-hmm. I think you can negotiate better. Do you, is, is it your, um, oh, I wanted to ask you this next. What was it like, David, watching your work brought to life on a stage? I can only imagine. What was that like the first time you saw the the, the play live? Oh, well, we we knew in the in the rehearsals before any audience saw it that it was hilarious because we would be dying laughing 
every day. At least we so we should have been sure of it, right? But the first night of the play, um, I guess we hadn't thought out everything, and we forgot to save seats for ourselves. So oh. the play was sold out, and we couldn't see it because there were no seats. Oh, my goodness. And, and so my wife and I, Jamil and I, stood outside the door with our ears pressed against the door, listening. Oh, my gosh. Waiting for the first laugh. And then the first laugh came. And then another laugh came, and then another, and they just kept laughing and laughing. And, you know, we felt more at ease. Um, but it's a, I've seen it hundreds of times, and it's a thrill and it's nervous every single time, you know. It's a thrill and it's nervous every single time. Um, okay. I remember going to see an August Wilson play, and after, he was outside smoking up a storm. And I was thinking to myself, boy, you got to calm down. <laughs> because at the time, <laughs> I hadn't developed that nervousness. <laughs> it's true. Oh, but then eventually, oh, yeah. I was just as nervous. Luckily, I don't smoke. But I was like, yeah. oh, my God. He got to the point where I'm like, I can't watch the show. I'm too nervous. Uh, right. You know, because... Oh, the show wow. could go 98% great, and it'd be one tiny thing, and I'm off the deep end. I'm like, okay, I can't do yeah. this anymore. <laughs> but, but it's it's but wonderful to see people laugh, to see people moved. One of the things that people would say, um, and I tried to keep this alive and on top of the world, is that they didn't know that they could laugh so hard and learn so much. And and I think that's oh, my like that. My uniqueness as a writer is the ability to talk about, you know, serious stuff going on in the world, to talk about history, to talk from an Afrocentric point of view, but do it in a romantic comedy that makes you laugh out loud and believe in the power of love. That's that's how I would describe my writing. This is the third time you've led into my next question without <laughs> being aware of it, but I was going to ask you if it was your goal to eject humor into all your works, and it sounds like you're saying, yes, that is one of your goals, uh, but it, do you consciously sit down and intend to do that, or does it just happen organically on its own? Both. Both. Um, in theater, it happens without you even necessarily. It can happen by accident in rehearsal. I'll give you a case in point. The very first time we had a reading, when we first got the actors together, the guy um, read a rap from the play, and it was the word "ola," but he misread it as "holla," and we all burst out laughing. Oh God! And realized, oh my God, that's hilarious. Let's change it. Yeah, you know. So in theater, okay. stuff like that happens. You know, all that we'll change it and adapt it to what's going on in current events. You know, and people love that. You know, and that's one. I try to do that, even though, you know, On Top of the World is a novel, I try to keep it really close to what is going on right now in the world. Um, okay. Now, that said, can you introduce us to your latest book, On Top of the World? Could you give us a, a brief synopsis of On Top of the World? Okay, yeah. Um, on Top of the World is a is a, is a romantic comedy um, that reimagines... Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, not as an old, aged Victorian Englishman, but as a young, black, handsome music star, and who's the world's biggest star. And the love of his life, Belle, uh, is a is a is a super powerhouse lawyer, and they met in college and fell in love. And at the time, he was the biggest nerd on campus. And with her love, he was able to discover his confidence and let his talent shine, only for her to realize too late that she created a top charting monster with an ego the size of Wow. Oh, my goodness. Did he know, did he know in the book, is he aware that his what he's changing into is not something he really wants to be, or he's not aware? Does he, does uh, he before it gets to be too late, see that, wow, I'm headed down a, I'm not. I'm not a nice guy anymore. Yeah, he realizes he's not a nice guy. He realizes he's not a nice guy, and it's a struggle. 
between his recognition that he's not a nice guy and his obsession with people recognizing that he's a genius, and in particular a marketing genius, and that he could sell water to a whale, to quote Jay-Z, for example, or to quote you know a black street saying. Um, he's, he's obsessed with that. Um, and um, it relates to my own life in a sense when you asked me what was it like seeing people see your play, it can mm-hmm. be intoxicating, you know. It can be mm-hmm. intoxicating to see people laugh and enjoy your work. And so I imagined, you know, well, what if I just went all the way there and didn't try and rein in my ego at all and just think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread and just let my ego explode, what would I be like? Mm. And that's that's how I was able to relate to this character because he has no no restraints on his ego. At least when we first meet him, you know, and he his ego is completely out of control. Um, now, you said when he first meets when Bell and he first meet in college, he's a nerd. So yes. what, what is he doing when they when they I don't I mean I don't want to get the story away, but what is he? What is he doing when they first meet? Is is he he goes on to get involved in music? What's he involved in? She's a law. She's going after law. What's he doing when they first meet? And when you say a nerd, he dresses. Does he dress like a nerd? Is he shy? Is he quiet? Is he insecure? Oh, okay, yeah, good question. Well, it's funny because a lot of things we talked about earlier relate to it in terms of fear and bullying. Uh, he was a, he was a very small child as a kid, and he was. Uh, viciously bullied, and that that made him sort of shy and introverted. Um, and he was bullied because he was the teacher's pet, and he was the smartest kid in school, and the other kids were jealous of him over that. So even though he was shy and introverted, he goes on to win a scholarship at college. Um, but he's a poor kid, and Belle comes from a wealthy family. Her father's a judge. Her mother's a famous blues musician and uh she's in a sorority and the sorority and the fraternity guys pick on him and you know he's an outcast and but she feels she feels bad about that because she herself was an outcast in high school because she was known as Brainy Bell cuz she was so smart but you know she she still wants to be one of the cool kids so she's conflicted when she sees him getting picked on and then something happens that causes them to meet, and he actually saves the day for her um, in, a, in a romantic, humorous way. And when he saves the day for her, she she gives in to her feelings of attraction that she has for him, and they go forward from there and become like the, the campus couple. And she says, after a few months of cleaning him up, everybody on campus realized how fine he was, and girls started coming up to me saying, damn, girl, you need to start a makeover service. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and then then he he goes from there, I guess, and he gets into into music, and he he must. Yeah, at that point he he still is kind-hearted, and he wants to help the people in the community that he grew up in and he goes to become part of Teach for America and goes on to teach in high school. Um, But he gets jaded. He's like, why am I, you know, being a do-gooder when there's all this money to be made out there? And he starts changing, and and he sees that he could make a lot of money as a musician, especially if he's willing to sell certain type of images. He could really blow up. And his he and his friends, Marley and Cratchit, um, form a record company and blow up. Wow, Scrooge! Scrooge really takes off now. In the Scrooge, we know the um, the book. You know that the Scrooge. He, he kind of has that background too. You have to really watch the story of how he got started. I know I don't want to get a book away, but the woman in the the Scrooge story life. Uh, he, I think she ended up leaving him because he just was obsessed. Like you, like you're saying, he just could not be there. Now, Belle, she's she she was teased, and she uh, she's going after law, and she still wants to be one of the in crowd. Is she? How is there somebody that is widely known that you could say, oh, yeah, that's Belle's like her? 
Uh, yeah, well, it's she's like different types of people, or different types of people you know. So, for example, um, Gabrielle Union is in oh, the news okay. currently because she's in um, in the Nat Turner story, Birth of a Nation. Um, and we know that Gabrielle Union suffered some horrible things in her past. Right. And and right. she's conflicted about the controversy going on surrounding the movie because she wants to tell our story, you know, and our, our not just being victims but trying to fight for freedom. But she's conflicted mm-hmm. about all the controversy going on in the around the film right now. And Gabrielle Union is very beautiful. And as depicted in the book, Belle is so beautiful that she causes traffic accidents when she walks down the street. And she loves Scrooge. She sees the good in him, but she's conflicted because he's turned into such a jerk. You know? And so what do you do, is the question of the book, when the boy you fell for in college becomes music's biggest star and biggest jerk? Give him a second chance or turn around, leave, and start over? That's her dilemma in the book. Mm. Now, so, so the book... Tell us how old Belle and Scrooge are, and if you could just give us a little telling us where they both are from, and how long do you follow them in the story? Do you take them from high school to their early 30s? Do you take them from college to mid-30s or early 40s? How far do you follow them in the story? Okay, yeah, great. They're um, 32 and 33 in the book, and you follow... Scrooge from the fourth grade all the way up, from the fourth grade all the way up, and you follow her, Belle, from the ninth grade all the way up, and she's from Chicago, Uh, she's from South Shore in Chicago, no, sorry, sorry, she's from Hyde Park, my wife's from South Shore in Chicago, she's from Hyde Park in Chicago, and he's uh, from East Harlem in Harlem in New York. Um, and they go to an elite college in New York City, uh, Benjamin Franklin University, and we follow them um, in New York and L.A. Because it it takes place. Um, he gets it, it. It opens on the night of Hollywood's biggest awards, and he's about to be crowned music's king, and finally feel like he's going to get his due. And he looks out into the audience as they call his name, and he sees the face of his best friend who um died in a in a in a ridiculously oh. tragic pool drowning accident and then the story takes off from there. Wow. Well what a good opening. What a good opening. So now people are wondering, okay, what's going on with Scrooge Scrooge so now, now again without giving the story away, I know there's gotta be drama and conflict to keep readers reading. I yeah. know you said you you use humor in your stories as well and in your plays, but you've got to have that high attention so people can wonder what's going to happen. Is this something that happens in On Top of the World that tests? Belle is devoted to Scrooge, and then she sees him. And, I, and this I have to did he did he start to change after his record sales took off or was it before she started, when he started getting some attention from other women on campus? When did he start to go from like oh, this quiet, shy, insecure, nerdy guy yeah. into uh, thinking, I'm it, I'm the, I'm the king? When did, he, when did okay. that shift take? Well, well, the semester after they started dating, they took a, a theater music class together. She convinced him to take the class with her, and they uh, performed the play My Fair Lady and um he he is his first time on stage and he starts off really shy um and quiet as a church mouse but eventually once he starts performing he starts to feel hey they like this the girls are looking at me this is kind of cool you know and the seed gets planted there um, from his first time on stage, he starts feeling himself a little bit. Um, the ego doesn't explode yet, but, yeah, in college, once people start seeing him differently, the seed gets planted for what's going to come later. 
okay, okay. What happens? Um, not, I don't know. Just give a teaser that really makes that tests their their devotion to each other. I'm feeling sad for Scroogey. I got to tell you, he sounds like <laughs> he had a chance to go a whole nother way. And well, this is the like, thing. Oh my God. This is the thing. Like I said, I like to write romantic comedies that inspire people to believe in the power of love. And so in in the original version, he's elderly and at the end of his life, and he's already lost Belle forever. But but in this version, they're in their early 30s, and the ghosts come to tell him, look, you got to change now. And you got to win this woman back if you really want to find happiness. And you have to become the man that you were originally supposed to be instead of this egotistical version of yourself. And so, you know, it's it's about the ability to change by overcoming the fear that you're not good enough for love. Because all along, no matter how successful he is, deep down he thinks he's not good enough for her. Because he grew up poor, and she didn't. Really? Even after all that success, he never got over that? No, he's haunted. You know, do you know, do you know, David, anybody that, that, I find that almost like, wow. Do you know anyone who, after tremendous amounts of success, some people in business, I'm reading a book called The Cinderella Complex, and this lady's talking about no matter how much success some people have re- achieved, they still feel very insecure. Do you, do you know, like, anyone who all, I mean, just applause everywhere they go, and they still feel like I'm not really worth receiving authentic love? Have you ever ran into anybody like that? Like when you model your characters, do you model them off of little bits, fragments of people you've met actually in real life? In all honesty, most of the men I know, including really? myself. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's 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 race, it's class. You know, one of the reviews of the book said that it perfectly combines humor and romance and a satire about race, class, and celebrity worship. And you know, you grow up in a society where, you, as a black man in particular, you're constantly demonized as a criminal, no matter what you do. You could have never committed a crime, but people are always looking at you like that, it does something to you internally, you know. And if you grow up poor and people are looking at you as less than, you know, you develop a certain type of resentment because people treated you differently because you grew up poor. And it takes effort to to overcome that and to feel worthy of of love, to not feel suspicious of people. So even though this is a fiction book, it deals with a lot of the things that we wrote about in Perfect Combination, which is learning how to believe that you are worthy of love and to prepare yourself to be ready for love and learning, because love is the most beautiful thing. You know, it's infinite. There's always more love you can give and receive. You know, that's what makes it so beautiful. It 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 never dries up, and and that and that's what what the story is about underneath. Even though it's hilarious and it's funny and it's touching and it's sad, it's about the power of love. Um, okay. And that's a good that's a good message that never gets old. I want to have to ask you, who are some of the writers, David, who inspire you, and what is it about their work that you appreciate the most? Ah. Uh, Mark Twain, um, because he he wrote about serious issues, in a but wrapped in a in a, in a comedic way. Uh, if you look at you know Connecticut Yankee, it's, it's it's about democracy and about slavery, and but it's done in a funny way. Definitely, uh, Paul Beatty writing currently. Uh, I think my stuff is more. Uh, it's, it's different than his, but Paul Beatty, um, Terry McMillan, um, her ability to write stuff that tugs on your heartstrings, uh, Kimberly Lawson Roby, 
Um, it's another person, the the smoothness, the easiness of the reading in her writing. Um, you know, so it's a lot of people. Um, Marta Acosta, the humor in her writing. And then, you know, people who don't write fiction, like, oh, Charles Johnson, author of Middle Passage, for sure. Um, you know, I read a lot of different types of people. Okay, okay. Now, does living in a large city like New York, does that help with book marketing and sales? Uh, and if so, how do you see that that may give you more leverage than if you were in a small town? Um, I think so because there's more people that you can, in some ways yes, in some ways no. There's more people that you can reach in your immediate area, um, so that definitely helps. And then there's also more people trying to reach them, so there's more competition. Um, but I, I found um, that. If you are able to reach enough people with something that they like, then they will become your greatest marketing force because they will tell their friends, you got to read this book, you got to check out this book. You know. So the first thing is to write something that people are going to love and then get it in the hands of enough people that they will tell their friends about it and it takes on a life of its own. Um, okay, now... We're coming down to just about four minutes left. If On Top of the World was a major motion picture, who would play uh, the major characters like Scrooge and Belle and some of the other major characters in the story? Okay. As long as they could pull off the, the you know, the early 30s, I got to go with Kevin Hart as Cratchit. Oh, um, okay. Because Cratchit in the book is a comedian who's exploited by Scrooge. So uh, I could totally see that. Um, maybe um, Laz Alonzo as Marley, um, an athletic, handsome sort of brother. Um, Gabriel Union, possibly if she could pull that off. Um, or Kiki Palmer as Belle, someone like that. Um, wearing their hair natural. Um, and <laughs> and as as Scrooge, uh, in a fantasy world, if he could pull it off, Kanye. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Ah, very very interesting. We'll see what we'll see what comes of all that. Where can off the shelf listeners get a get a copy of of each of your books, and where can they catch your 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 play? Okay, um, you can get the well the book Perfect Combination: Seven Key Ingredients to Living and Loving Together, and on top of the world, both can be um, purchased on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or at Barnes and Noble other bookstores. Can also be downloaded on iBooks or on Kobo. Um, so Amazon, Barnes and Noble, iBooks, and Kobo, you can get them there. And you can um, visit our website at plotanosandcollardgreens.com, and it'll give you all the information on the play. Okay. Now, do you have any upcoming speaking engagements that you can yes. share with our listeners? Yes. yes. Today I will be up in the Bronx with the people of Fresh at the Bronx Learning Center at 310 Kingsbridge Road at 3 o'clock, um, doing a book, my first book reading for On Top of the World. That's at the Bronx uh, library Center at 310 Kingsbridge Road at 3 o'clock today. And then next Saturday and Sunday, I will be at WBLS Radio's Circle of Sisters at the Javits Center. Um, so I know a lot of people will be coming out to that. And hopefully you can stop by and pick up a copy, and we'll be I'll be happy to autograph it for you. Okay, okay. Can you tell us where we can find you on social media? Yes, um, at author David Lamb on Twitter and at the author David Lamb on Facebook and at uh, davidlambooks.com, D-A-V-I-D-L-A-M-B-B-O-O-K-S.com. And again, on Twitter, is at author David Lamb. Okay, we want to thank David Lamb for being here with us 
on this Saturday morning on Off the Shelf. And David, he is a, a attended Hunter College. He's a graduate of there and Princeton University, where and and the New York University School of Law. He also is a, a playwright. And he and his wife co-wrote Perfect Combination. And the the book that we were talking about the most today is his latest book, which he's going to be signing in the city and going to be at the WBLS event. And that's On Top of the World. And you can visit David online at davidlambbooks.com, D-A-V-I-D-L-A-M-B as in boy, B-O-O-K-S.com, davidlambbooks.com. Thank you so much, David, for being here with with us, and we thank you for – for sharing and being so candid uh, with us here on Off the Shelf. We encourage our listeners to come back next Saturday. Tell your family, your friends, everybody who just appreciates this story to tune in to Off the Shelf Radio every Saturday month. You're going to miss a lot if you miss the show. You're not going to be able to catch it live ever again. Again, it's Off the Shelf Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, or New York City time, easy to remember. Again, Saturdays, 11 in the morning, New York City time, Eastern Standard Time. Just set your dial to off-the-shelf radio. As I always tell you, all of you, and I hope one day that we really, really come to truly believe this, you are awesome, you're amazing, you are incredible. It'll be a very, very blessed day when we get that in us. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. David, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you.